The scripture for the sermon is from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. This is God's word. Thank you, Katie. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, uh, one of the four Gospels that begin, that begin the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark's a great place to um, be confronted with the vivid reality of who Jesus was. Uh, Mark is based on uh, Peter's memories of Jesus. Peter was an illiterate fisherman, a man of action, and he just records what he saw. Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. And we've seen that there's been a change in the progression of the story. There are 16 chapters in Mark. And when you get to the 8th chapter, the whole mood changes. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that is the Christ, the anointed one of God. And with that confession, with that act of faith, Jesus turns. He's been up in the north of Israel. The journey turns towards Jerusalem and the cross. Jesus switches from primarily talking to crowds and teaching large groups to an intense focus on the disciples as he prepares them to understand what's about to happen. So let's have a look at this. They left that place and passed through Galilee. They've been in the north of uh, Israel, um, around Galilee and northeast of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and now they're heading south towards Jerusalem. It's about 60-odd miles. It'd be like us getting up and deciding we're going to march off to Philadelphia or something like that. And notice, Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. Galilee is where Jesus spent three years. He would teach out in the wilderness, and thousands of people would come, up to, we're told, 5,000 people at a time. So this is a small area. He walked around it and traveled for three years. Everybody would have recognized him. He would have been a familiar face. And so for him to travel in an incognito like this would have been hard. He would have had to stay away from the paths and the roads and the villages. So you're probably looking at them out in the wilderness, in the hills, camping out at night, and this intense time of teaching. You know, perhaps as they walked or while they rested or as they sat around a campfire. (coughs) And what is he teaching them? Well, he must have been saying many things. We know from the disciples' letters, uh, from the letters of John and from Peter and of James, that there are many things that they heard from from Jesus. There's many things in the, the Gospels. But there was a core message. And three times... In the Gospel of Mark, Peter repeats the message. Actually, he starts in chapter 8, after the, um, the teaching begins. He talks about it here, and he talks about it in chapter 10. In 8, he says, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, 
and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Same here, uh, same in chapter 10. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And then, of course, here. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> three times this is the summary of what Jesus teaches. So this is the gist, <clears throat> the essence of what Jesus tells them. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be condemned. He's going to die. And then three days later, he's going to rise again. This is the main teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples. It's the main thing that he wants them and us to know. So what does it mean? What is this all about? Who is the Son of Man? Why does the Son of Man have to die? What's the point of all that? Well, we've seen <clears throat> that Jesus is referred to in basically three different ways. There is Jesus the Christ. That's what Peter called him. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one of God. So Jesus Christ is the one sent by God to redeem his people. Jesus Christ is the Savior. But we've also seen Jesus be referred to as the Son of God. When he is baptized, a voice from heaven says, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. We saw when he went up the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there with Elijah, with Moses, and God said from heaven, This is my beloved Son. So you have Jesus Christ, Savior. You have Jesus Christ, Son of God. But then you have this other expression that Jesus refers to here, Son of Man. This is Jesus in his humanity. This expression, by the way, comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel, where there is the promise that there will be a Son of Man who does God's bidding in the world. So you can think of Jesus as Jesus the divine, Remember, Jesus is God and man. Jesus, in his divinity, is the Son of God, his relationship with God as Father. Jesus, as uh, a human being, in his humanity, his human nature, is the Son of Man. This is the one who was the son of Joseph and Mary, who grew up, who worked as a, uh, a carpenter born in Bethlehem, lived in a little town in Nazareth, this physical human being who uh, lived in Israel, who was an ordinary person. 
And by the way, the Bible says that he was very ordinary, if that's a real expression. Isaiah says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. These beautiful pictures you see of uh, Jesus as some kind of rock star, that's not what he was. He was an ordinary-looking human being. He would have had calloused hands. He was a working man. He was a carpenter. He would have had bad breath, no toothpaste back then, no flossing, no dentists. He would have had stinky feet. He walked everywhere in a time when there's no socks, there's no shoes. Running water is hard to find in a dry, dusty country. So he is an ordinary human man, but he is also God. Paul says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So you have to get in your head, and it's, it's impossible, by the way. There, is, there are aspects of Christ that, that is just you're not going to be able to fit in. You've got to get in your head the idea that in Christ you have these two natures. A full humanity. He is the incarnate word who becomes physical like us. Finite, limited, suffering, uh, can hunger and thirst. But also this same person is divine, is God. Second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Infinite, omnipotent, omniscient. Somehow, and this is the miracle of Christ, the finite and the infinite come together. And when we encounter Christ when we are in relationship with him, we are not just in relationship with God, uh, Jesus the man, but also the infinity of God. And that's why any pictures of Jesus are always going to be misleading. It's why God said, don't make any images or idols. Don't try to represent me in this world because there is nothing in this world like me. I transcend everything that you can imagine or think or make or uh, draw or create. In Christ, we're, in, we're encountering this extraordinary combination, this extraordinary revelation. By the way, in the um, Protestant Reformation, uh, theologians started to think about this seriously. How could we think about God? And um, one of the confessions that we base, the Presbyterian Church is based on, the Westminster Confession, says this about Jesus. The Son of God, it's talking about Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time had come, take upon him man's nature. So the second person in the Trinity, divine, who is filled with all the substance and fullness of God. It's, the words are hard to translate. Sometimes you'll hear uh, translated as, as the Godhead or the divinity or the, the aspect of God that makes him God and different from us, his holiness. That's who Jesus is and was. And that person became a human being. 
the Godhead, this essence, this, this um, trinity, the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. That's who Jesus is. And notice, they're struggling with words here because it's hard to describe Jesus. With that conversion, Jesus, as God, does not turn himself into a human being. He is still God. Without composition. But he is so fully a human being and so fully God that it's not just like things put together or nailed together or um, put together in a sort of pastiche. Or confusion. Jesus remains God even as he is fully a human being. God in Jesus is 100% God and 100% a human being together. That is the mystery and the challenge. There's a second challenge. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of man, and they will kill him. Why would God allow that to happen? What does it even mean that God is killed? Well, delivered into the hands of man, we've seen with the other uh, times that um, Mark talks about what Jesus said. The hands of man are the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law. They are all the ones who oversee in Jerusalem the temple, the law, the sacrificial system, the, the whole structure of Israel's uh, cultural, social, and religious life. They are ones at the top of the pyramid that oversee what Israel had become. And so what Jesus is doing is he is putting himself under that entire edifice. And to understand what he is doing, you have to really look at the whole Bible because in essence, the whole Bible, the Old Testament, is preparation for Jesus. It's what makes him intelligible. This extraordinary, miraculous figure, how can we think about him? Well, the Old Testament points to him and unpacks in its different stories and revelations who Jesus is and why he has to go to his death. So what does the Old Testament reveal to us? Well, the first thing it reveals is that human beings through Adam and Eve have sinned. The word sin literally means missing the mark, have missed the mark, are no longer connected with God. They've, we've missed him. We are out of alignment. We are not right with him. That is the discord, the disharmony, the disintegration of human life because that connection has been broken. That's what sin means. If you've ever seen any movies about hard hat, hard hat divers, you know they were the old divers that used to go down into the ocean connected by a hose to a boat on top. They're in this cold, dark place, but they receive life and air from the dive master in the boat above them. Well, what would happen if that hose was broken? That's very much what has happened to human beings. For a while, there's enough air 
and the diving suit and the big bell around their head, that they can be disconnected. They can go off and explore the bottom of the ocean. It's a beautiful place. But cut off from life and air, disobedient to the dive master, the bottom of the ocean soon becomes a cold, dark, and frightening place. You can go wherever you want, but as the air begins to get stuffy and you realize your life is going to run out, that's when you're going to start to freak out. That's the human condition. We've become disconnected with the source of life. And now the life in us is not infinite anymore. It is running out. And if we don't get in alignment with our creator, the source of life, and with his purpose, then things are going to get ugly. That's the human condition. Sin and that disconnection is why Jesus had to reconnect us with God. It's why he had to become a human being like us. A reconnected human being who's now in relationship with the source of life again. That is the new life he brings into our dark, cold world. But why did he have to die? Why didn't he can just reconnect us with God? Why all the blood and guts, all the sacrifice, the cross, the suffering? Well, once again, the, the Bible really is the way to understand what that is all about. You know, think of the temple in Jerusalem and all the sacrificial system. It's basically saying to reconnect with God, there needs to be payment. There needs to be a sacrifice. There needs to be blood. It's throughout the Bible. When Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden, a cherubim, an angel, is placed at the entrance with a flashing sword. To reconnect with God, to return to the garden, somebody is going to have to face that sword. At Passover, the blood of the lamb on the lintels of the households of the Hebrews is the only thing that saves them from death. On Mount Sinai, when God appears to Israel, for them even to touch that mountain there means death. When the uh, tabernacle is created with the ark at the center. It is so holy that even the chief priest has to go through this elaborate process to go into the Holy of Holies just once a year. And it's so terrifying that they used to tie a rope around his waist in case he died and they could pull him out without danger to themselves. The sacrificial system, everything happening at Jerusalem, was to teach Israel and through them, the world, what is necessary to reconnect with God. It's like a visual parable. It's, it's a way of revealing to human beings what the problem is and what's going to go, what's going to have to happen. But why? Why couldn't God just forgive us? Why can't he just say, you know, let bygones be bygones, let's move ahead and positive, kumbaya, everything is going to be fine. The problem is that God is just. You know, I've mentioned this to you before. 
In the West, it's easy to think that forgiveness is easy. Why can't we all just get along? But when there is injustice in the world, when people have really been hurt, Miroslav Wolf wrote all about this in the former Yugoslavia when he described villages where people had killed each other, killed each other's children, raped each other's wives, had just done monstrous things to each other. Just saying, can't you all just get along? Can't you all just move ahead and forget, let bygones be bygones? It's not enough. The only thing that could possibly prevent vengeance and ongoing revenge is the promise that God is just and that he will make the wrongdoer pay. It's the only way that you can have peace in this world. Otherwise, human nature being what it is, we will go after each other. I mean, everyone knows that. Everyone who's been in a family with siblings knows that. When your siblings are unjust towards you, you don't just let it slide. When I was a kid, um, this is back in the, the dark, pre-enlightened days of old England. Back then, it was still the big brother's job to torment siblings. And if my uh, siblings did not get up, I had two sisters and a brother. If they didn't get up in time for school, my mom would send me up. Um, I was a good boy. My job was to take the dog for a walk, so I was all before school, and so I was always up. And if they didn't get up, she'd send me upstairs to wake them up. Now, sisters are easy. I would just let the dog in their room. Um, an enthusiastic wet nose is wonderfully alarming to women in bed, and it was no problem. But my brother was a special case. There's a special bond between brothers. And so I would pin him under his blanket, and I'd put frozen peas or frozen sweet corn up his nose until he couldn't stay asleep. Now, <laughs> objectively, that is a wicked thing to do to your little brother, you know, and he's right to resent it. And he would tell my parents about it. And how could they respond? He has been violated. He's had frozen vegetables pushed up his nose. He could tell mom and she could punish me, which was the desired outcome, and he enjoyed that. That was fully acceptable to him. She could have taken responsibility for what I had done to him, which would have upset me. You know, I had betrayed my mother's love for her son. I was in the wrong. That would have been horrible for me. Or she could just blow it off. Just Let's just love one another. We're family after all. Brothers should love brothers. That never happened, by the way. And if it had, Mark would have been furious. In fact, he would have devoted his time and all the creativity of his ingenious little mind to revenge. Even kids know there must be justice. If you wrong somebody, if you do damage, somebody pays. Either you pay or the person you've hurt and damaged pays. Just saying, let's forgive and forget, will not cut it. And God is just. The Bible says God is love, yes, but he is also just. He is the foundation of justice and righteousness, that which is good and true. And so he cannot ignore injustice. That's what God's wrath is all about. It's what we, uh, we saw in the passage we read.
it's, a, it's an ugly idea for many people. The idea that God is not just love, but that God is a God of wrath and justice. Well, think about it this way. Imagine a doctor, a brilliant specialist in cancer, top of her field. And now imagine that she discovers that her child has got cancer. Cancer is a terrible thing for anybody. Cancer in a child is just horrible, especially if it's your own child. The person that she loves most in the world has cancer. What do you think her relationship, the doctor, what is her relationship to that cancer? Utter wrath. She will do anything that she has to do, any treatment, any medical technique, any money, as much time and energy as it takes to destroy that cancer. She is never going to stop because that cancer is destroying her child. That is what wrath looks like. Well, cancer is actually a very good analogy for sin. Cancer is us. Cancer cells have the same DNA as we do. They are us, except the cells are in rebellion. They're not following the pattern or the shape of the rest of our body. And they grow in rebellion, and unchecked, they destroy us. It's exactly what sin does. Sin is in all of us. This rebellion is in all of us. It's in the very essence of who we are. If sin were blue, we would be blue all over, and everything that we do and think and are in relationship with would be tainted by that blueness. And God's wrath, God's justice, is pursuing that blue, that sin, that rebellion that destructive part of us that's going to destroy us. And he will never stop until it is removed because we are his beloved. God's wrath, God's justice is there to bring healing to those that he loves. And that's why Jesus came into the world. But what could it mean? will be killed by men. If Jesus really is God, how can God be killed? What can it possibly mean that God went to the cross? Well, it is a mystery. The Bible does not explicitly tell us. It's a mystery. It is a miracle. It is a wonder. But we get glimpses if we look at what happened to Jesus on the cross. Jesus speaks on the cross. At the end of Mark, this is Mark 15, Peter records, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemaseth bakthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've read that to you many times. It is the one place where Jesus refers to his father as God. Because on the cross, Jesus takes our sin upon himself, our rebellion, our ugliness, our disease, our darkness, and he becomes ugly in God's sight. He becomes now the object of wrath, of punishment. No longer the beloved son, 
but now what must be destroyed? Something else happens. And by the way, the one way of thinking about that is God, and from God's eyes, Jesus is no longer the beloved son. So you can think of the one on the cross not so much as the son of God, but now the son of man. It is his humanity that the wrath will be poured out on because it is human beings who are the problem, who are sinful. But that's not the only thing that Jesus says on the cross. Uh, in Matthew and Luke, we read this. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Remember, even though God has now turned his back on the beloved son, Jesus holds on to that relationship. Into your hands I commit my spirit. What could that mean? Remember what Jesus is. He's the son of man. That means he's physical, human being, just like us. But he's also divine. That means he is spiritual. He has a spirit. That is his divine nature. In Christ, both of those things come together. At this point, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. At the point of death, Jesus gives up his spirit. What could that mean? Paul put it this way. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in his appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. In some sense, Jesus empties himself on the cross. That means he gives up all the prerogatives of divinity. He gives up all his majesty and glory. He gives up his omnipotence, his infinity. He gives up abundant life. He gives up everything that makes him God. And so there you have a naked man on the cross who has given up everything. And on that person is the wrath of God poured out and judgment and death and three days in a grave. And yet he holds on. All the wrath of God all the sin in the world, all the darkness of death comes between him and his father. Even God has turned away from him. And yet he remains faithful. He remains in love with his father. He holds on to that relationship. And somehow, because he doesn't let go, either of his humanity or his divinity, because he holds on to his human nature, even at that extremity, because he holds on to us and keeps us connected, somehow that swallows death up. Death cannot separate him and his love from his father. And that is the connection that we now have with our father, because he never let go. His two natures, though ripped asunder, he never let go. He never gave up faith. 
he never stopped loving. I believe that's what happened on the cross, and that's why he could be raised again. Because he never lost that relationship with his father. What does that mean? It means if we follow him, if we follow him on that journey, if we put our trust in him, he will bring us to the other side of death. He will bring us home to the Father. Now, the disciples couldn't understand it. They spent the rest of the journey trying to figure it out. Even when they saw the cross, they didn't understand it. Remember, they ran away. But because he did it, the cross is turned from a death machine into a life machine. He holds on to us, he holds on to God, and he brings them together even through death. That's why we worship him. That's why it's the center of Christianity. That's why it was the main thing he wanted his disciples to know and learn, and for us to know and learn. Let's pray together. They did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Lord, we are confronted here by wonders and mysteries. The wonder and mystery of your love for us, your sacrifice for us, what you went through so that we could be in a relationship with you and with God forever. Lord, uh, help us to understand. Help us to trust. Help us to have faith. Help us to follow and become your disciples. Feed us. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.